Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. This month, we've focused a lot on two alternating threads in the show, more intense talk about sex and more intense talk about the relationship to oneself. As I try to tackle harder concepts and try recording more outside and in less ideal environments, I'm continuing to experiment with my craft. Let me know what you think about these different show ideas and what's working for you and what isn't. You can go ahead and comment on facebook.com slash intimatevictor, or you can go to Twitter or Instagram and send me a message at intimatevictor, or you can just email podcast at victorsalmon.com. Today we're going to be talking about suicidality what being close to suicide felt like for people who have had major depressive disorder for a long time. And we're also going to talk about what it's been like for me to live with suicidal ideation my whole life and think about it in a very granular fashion. Often I ask myself, am I just thinking about hurting myself or possibly am I thinking about suicide in a semi-serious way, but with unrealistic means, you know, maybe the caution light goes on there. Maybe I'm just thinking about it in an unrealistic situation because it helps me get through the day. Sometimes suicidal ideation is genuinely helpful for me, I think. Maybe I'm thinking about suicide in a semi-serious way with things that are accessible to me. Now the alarms are going off. Maybe I've missed my ideal window to intervene and I really need to get help. And of course, then there are serious plans for suicide that one intends to carry out, which is the last stage I've gotten to, fortunately, other than actually attempting, which... I only really actually attempted when I was seven. In any case, fortunately for me today, I'm not experiencing any suicidal ideation, and I think it's legitimately gotten better for me. While no one can guarantee it will get better for you, I think it usually does provided you're working at making it better. I think that effort to change and the time to do so often leads us to better places, but of course it's rare for things to improve on their own. Though I suppose I should mention that with luck, occasionally things do get better, and also occasionally something happens and it disrupts our coping strategies, which is something we'll talk about today. Also, sometimes life circumstances just change, and that can trigger a depressive or suicidal episode, and that's okay too. Hopefully, you have the coping resources and strategies. We talked in episode 70 about what the experience of depression is like, almost like an introduction. And in episode 72, we talked about various coping methods without meds. Today, we'll touch on suicidality a little bit and also go into medications. So we'll touch briefly on medications and side effects, but we'll try and stay away from that topic today as we hope to do another episode specifically on just medications um, for if you are considering medications at all. (sighs) Wherever you are, whatever your struggles are, I really do hope you find your way to something better. Genuinely, if you're listening to this, it's not over yet. From my heart to yours, no matter where you are, there's always a way home. Best of luck finding less self-resentment and 
Hopefully you'll continue to do so, even if it's just by degrees. Maybe you'll find more will to continue. Sometimes you find it in the weirdest of places. I honestly believe it's worth it to keep trying regardless. And yes, if you need resources, and please do, please do look into it even if you don't, because you may need to send them to someone one day. Um, the resources are going to be listed in the show notes, but just in case you miss them, they will be available at intimatevictor.com forward slash resources, which you can scroll down to the mental health resources section, which will include Vancouver specific ones. If you want more international ones, cocothelouder.com forward slash coco-resources forward slash has resources as well. All right, I think we made it through the intro. Now it's time to go to the episode. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. I am here with Dax, a undergraduate degree holder in um, psychology, if I'm, if I'm correct. Yep. Awesome. Um, and uh, also... It sounds someone, better if you say, like, bachelor's. A bachelor's in psychology. I can say bachelor's in psychology. Also, you won a fight once, a kickboxing <laughs> fight. That sounds cooler to me. Was an amateur fighter that won a fight. At kickboxing. One out of was. two is an amateur fighter. Still in the middle of my, beginning of my amateur fighting career. Of course. Um, speaking of that, um, when you were at the height of that win, for example, if we just cut to maybe um, two weeks after you, because we were talking about coping strategies for depression to sort of back myself up. Yeah. Um, and we were talking about diet and we were talking about exercise. We were talking about hydration. We were talking about sleep. And we had sort of gotten to a place in your story of how all those things were sort of coming together and you were functional and coping with depression on a very active level. Right. And I wasn't on medication at that point mm -hmm. either. Right. Which was something that I was always very proud of, too, was, right. you know, being able to handle things just on my own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's incredibly challenging. Yeah. Not that we're talking about meds this time, but... Uh, we'll get there. Yeah. So I, I was doing all of the other coping strategies, you know, working on, um, you know, social network, making sure that I had things to look forward to. I was doing enough physical activity. The food's always been a huge challenge. Um, sleep, you know, I, I was doing well enough on that. I wasn't letting it get out of control as mm -hmm. far as like staying up too late and things like that. You were really good at avoiding triggers, like you didn't watch a lot of television shows or play a lot of games. Um, you were even starting to wind back how much substance substances you were using in terms of cannabis and things like that. Specifically cannabis. Oh, yeah. I had actually quit at that point. Right. Yeah. So you'd, you'd quit all the substances you'd formerly used, and you were using exclusively what medical practitioners would consider, quote-unquote, healthy coping strategies. It was like a complete transformation of you as a person. And this was right after you had just won your first amateur fight ever. And I remember just being like, I think she might just be like a superhero. Because <laughs> like, I don't think I have half of my shit, half as together as all of her shit seems to be. You know what? Even even the the food and the meal prep was coming together at that point, too. With the, <laughs> like like I said. It, was an, it was a necessity. Um, but yeah, I, I was, yeah. So I literally I watched you... Now. Put yourself in the line of fire with a Toastmasters speech, not just regular Toastmasters speaking, but like humorous Toastmasters speaking, which is like an added level of what the fuck for me. It was, yeah, it was, um, they, they have competitions every once in a while, so. 
you did a competition with Toastmasters. There were like you, two other people from my club that competed. <laughs> you you consistently went to the gym. You were doing physical activity all the time. Yeah. You were working full time. Yeah, at, at a career that I, I found fulfilling at the time for the most part, probably. It's <laughs> um, a lot of qualifiers, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you lost your first amateur fight by decision, unanimous decision, and you kept going and you threw yourself back in the ring again and then won a fight. Yeah. With an 0-1 record, you went into the ring and won a fight. And I was just like... Yeah, I mean, she hadn't had any fights, so... Right, right. Which was you when you faced off against that person with 10 fights that you lost to. Yeah, I like to start things on level difficult. (laughs) Then everything seems easier after that. That does tend to be a strategy of yours. So anyways, needless to say, I was very impressed and, yes, very happy to be one of your partners. And more importantly than that, very proud of you. And then life shit started really getting in the way of this of this incredible momentum that you'd built for yourself. Do you want to talk about stuff that got in the way of all of those healthy coping strategies? Well, it was the concussion. Definitely. Um, that really did. Oh, I also lost a close friend. That was and, the one I was thinking and, of. Oh, yeah. I always forget about that. I wonder why. Repressing. Um, yeah, I didn't, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't want to be the one to bring it up, but I was definitely going to give you a gentle nudge if you like conveniently forgot again yeah i almost forgot about that shit uh yeah so the like first people that i met when i I got here and they were huge supports and Mm -hmm. you know like amazing friends helped you with your car um yeah yeah they helped in so many ways so many times um i mean ryan in particular you know made a huge difference with one statement one time just saying um eating cereal for dinner every night yeah, you can tell. Um, I was like, oh, okay, maybe I should start doing something about that. And right. he invited me over for dinner and things like that. Um, anyway, yeah, their family fell apart. He um, moved back to Ontario and ended up dying by suicide, uh, mental health related. Um so the place in the story my concussion comes at is um, on the Saturday I was sparring and it was a bit reckless. Um, we were doing some reckless sparring and this woman from another gym who was quite a bit heavier than me and less experienced and less careful um just threw a wild head kick and didn't pull it in any way and i didn't block it any in any way because i didn't see it in time and um so it was instant headache and i made the decision to stop sparring that round stupidly did some exercise after that for an hour um it was the next day that i saw the news about my friend and so the thing that usually makes me feel better is going to the gym and in particular sparring makes me feel better um it's creative it's interesting it's interactive yeah and if i'm like depressed and like um looking for self-harm you're like oh you got me in the head Uh, (laughs) oh shoot took a couple extra punches um pain pain can be really good for reducing general affect 
um, when I was just thinking about a paper I read on non-suicidal self-injury for people yeah. to cut and burn and such, and it supposedly reduces total affect. So that includes one's processing of joy and happiness in life, but also one's experience of really negative, shitty, self-loathing, etc. So hmm. for folks that are participating in non-suicidal self-injury, um, sometimes they just have a really negative experience of life because they're depressed or they're getting bullied at school or they just are experiencing a lot of self-hate. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And SSI can be really helpful in sort of reducing that experience and making life feel more tolerable. Yeah, it's definitely a coping mechanism um, for many. It's also not necessarily suicidal or moving in the direction of suicide. yeah. um, Which is a common, anyways, um, misunderstanding. So you were talking about going and experiencing pain at a gym. Yeah, um, I I was never like really really reckless in that way but i yeah i was sparring with someone i shouldn't have been sparring with because he was so much heavier than me it's just um yeah it was just stupid and i took you know another few shots to the head um and the depression so it it was or maybe not it wouldn't have been depression at that point it would have just been you know your regular experience of grief Mm -hmm. you know um you know the the wife and kids had moved back to germany so i lost them in my life and then um And, and they had pets yes i ended up taking in one of the cat or their cat um but but yeah so so there there was yeah a number of things kind of all at once definitely the concussion and symptoms lasted for a long time um i also had like a ski trip already planned for that week and i was like oh i already booked it and i can't not go Um, and this is from someone who's like brain injury informed who works with people that have brain injury yeah i knew i knew what i was doing was stupid i i knew very well at the time like i shouldn't be doing this right um which didn't help um it's also anxiety inducing to change a lot more shit when everything else is changing i think yeah, I mean, if that's your if your coping strategy is exercise, if you know at that point that's you know the your string to sanity, um, and, and then it's kind of being cut from you, and you don't have a replacement, and then with concussions, you know you've got a constant headache, um, in in some or most cases. Um, they can be a trigger for depression on their own. Yeah, the the damage, um, you know, to to the head itself, and then also the change of life circumstance, like not going to the gym, losing that social network. Yeah, yeah, all of those things just kind of accumulate. Yeah, and you had all of this just crush you all at once, and you were like, "Okay, cool. I have no idea how to cope with this." Pretty much, yeah. Um, and, and I knew as soon as I couldn't go to the gym, I was just like this it's not not a good sign yeah i definitely i definitely had no idea what to do as a friend and lover to support you like had absolutely no idea because i knew how effective the gym had been for you yeah it was devastating i i mean i was devastated in multiple ways at the same time and i don't know what was going on with work at the time but that you know is also been a source of stress um over the years Mm -hmm. so changing gears a little let's talk about suicidality because it's the question 
um, that doesn't get talked about openly at all. I'm curious how recently you felt suicidal. I mean, like, I know, but I'm curious for right, the sake yeah. of um, helping my audience kind of track. That was really the only time I've ever felt like suicide was a thing that I might participate in at some point in my life. And it, sure. it wasn't even that I felt like it was an immediate threat. Um, you know, I had just been in so much mental pain for so long um you know days just stretch before you and there's nothing to look forward to you don't know if you can exercise again you're down on yourself for not doing enough exercise because exercise is healthy and makes you better but don't do too much because then your heart rate's going up too high and then you know it's worsening your concussion so there was a fine balance such that you're able to hate yourself no matter what you're doing <laughs> you're like i'm exercising too much i'm really dumb or i'm not exercising enough i'm feeling really terrible yeah and also just both of those at the same time right <laughs> and oh i'm on my phone too much because bright screens contributed to it so there was so many ways that you could be upset with yourself for not um, doing everything you could to make yourself better. Um, you know, the food was another one. Um, I went and saw just whoever anyone really recommended for anything. I had so many, like, fucking acupuncture needles. Am I allowed to swear? You are definitely allowed to swear. Acupuncture, um, like, was awful and i had some like prolotherapy injections in my neck that like they're they're not even like research based and i'm just like whatever i'll take a placebo effect if that's what happens <laughs> like i like anything at this point yeah and that's very unlike you to say you're so research oriented in everything you pursue oh i know i was like what am i doing at a chiropractor's Right. <laughs> like, right. But you're like, I'm just so desperate to see gains. Yeah, I was desperate for anything. I bought all their supplements and like just, yeah. Um, placebo yeah. effect is better than no effect. And the placebo effect's pretty strong. Yeah, like if it exists, why not try and exploit it in any way you can? Yeah, I mean, if, if you can sell me hope in a bottle, I would rather have hope than be hopeless. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes that's the line between suicidality and not. Yeah, feeling like you Have some are hope. doing something. Mm -hmm. Feeling that you can do something. Like when you feel like there's nothing you can do, um, that's when it gets hopeless. And it's that hopeless aspect that really, I think, is the leads to suicidality. I mean, that's how I characterize suicidal depression is like despair, hopeless, and failure, I think would be the three words that I would use to summarize it. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other words you want to throw on the heap of individual words that <laughs> reductively describe suicidal depression? Um, no, I, I mean, the, the hopeless aspect is just that that's a big, big warning sign. If, mm -hmm. if there's no hope for something to get better, then you have nothing. Mm -hmm. um, it's true. And so my line of thinking... Um, had gotten to the point where I just, I could not continue on like that. I just couldn't, like something had to give at some point. And I just was 
powerless to do anything about it. I woke up crying. Um, you cried all the way to work. Um, you know, sometimes during work, I don't know how I wasn't fired for, you know, the way I was like catching a glimpse of myself in the mirror was just, I, I mean, you know, I had people telling me like, you've lost a lot of weight. Um, I wasn't eating. I was just, it was bad for a long time and it affects all of your relationships as well of course I just I cut contact with most people just because it was so energy consuming um to to do anything really um going out like anything that that would have improved things like going out and spending time in nature well I want to go for a hike at that point, but if you're monitoring your heart rate and you can't get it up above a certain level, then you're kind of really restricted. And anyone who's going with you then has to walk at this snail's pace, um, you know, which isn't really fun for them either. And hanging around with someone who's that level of depressed is really depressing for them as well. Uh, so it just, yeah, it, it if you know, even cuts into your social ties at that point. Um, where was I going with uh, the suicidality? So, yeah. Um, That's a perfect question to ask <laughs> on suicidality. Where was I going with that? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it just became like this this endless thing. And even when I, you know, was telling myself that um, – it's cyclical, you'll come out of it at some point, you know, even if it's not something that you have power over, even if it just happens, like at some point, something will happen. Um, but it, it was almost like a state of emergency where my partner, Chris, or shit. Um, it's okay. There are a lot of Chris's in the world. <laughs> um, you know, actually asked to contact my mom and he um, asked her to come out a, f a number of times with me saying, absolutely not. Like, I'm totally fine. I don't want my mom involved in any way. Like, it's ridiculous that, you know, this is even being suggested. Like, what is she going to do anyway? And then... When I hit the point of, okay, suicide might actually be an option at some point, because even if, even if it's not this episode, how many more times can I go through this level of, um, intensive depression? Yeah, it was, yeah. And then, you know, just the way that all of your friends do need to be more supportive and you, but you feel like a huge burden. Um, you know, it, it took quite some time even for me to see the things that people were doing that at first seemed really annoying. Like uh, my teammate from the gym, she probably messaged me every week at least um, very frequently to ask how I was doing, like, how are the headaches? And it annoyed me for so long because I was like, all I can tell you is that there's still headaches. Like, it's not getting better. It still sucks. Um, and, and, you know, like, I hated that. And even just the energy of, you know, having to respond to this message in the first place. Um, but 
you know, then, you know, you realize later just how important it was that they did that or like how much it meant. Mm -hmm. And when I was at the lowest of the low, when I had accepted like shit at some point, yeah, this, this might be a thing that happens. Um, it me choosing to end it. Um, and like understanding how other people could get to that level of pain that they needed to end it. You know, like I was right there. Um, and, and then, yeah, I messaged her and I said, you know what, um, I, I have to take a short term or I'm, I'm doing like a long term risk for a short term kind of gains. Like, does it matter if I'm causing myself long term brain damage by going and training right now if I don't make it there? Right. So she, she luckily at the time was available and she met me at the gym, I think probably an hour after I asked and, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, she was just a a huge support. Like that did so much for me, um, you know, doing that. So I did reach out as much as I could. I was doing everything that I could do, but there was just without medication, I wouldn't have come out of it. Yeah. Yeah, my experience with suicidality has been quite different. I think the first time I really seriously considered, if not attempted, um, was when I was seven. Had a couple of, of of maybe attempts. It's it's hard to say, but the means were there, and I went and you know sat in the shed with the gasoline and really seriously thought about it. Mm-hmm. You know, because all the um, all the people that did spot that I was suicidal as a seven year old um, would just like find a way to casually drop. You know, like suicide's the coward's way out. And I was like, okay, well, thank you for that information. I'll make sure when I go out, I do it in such a, like, glorious fashion that no one can ever say I was a coward about it. So I was like, cool. So I'll light myself on fire and self-immolate. Oh, wow. That's pretty hard for people to say that isn't fucking hardcore. It's pretty hard for people to say, yeah, no, he was a coward. I'm like, yeah, you try and light yourself on fire and see how you feel about it. Um, so probably not a, the intent of that statement, but... Uh. Probably not the intent, but that was the response mm-hmm. that I had as a seven-year-old. So, yeah. I, I mean, a pretty shitty response to a seven-year-old that's at that mm-hmm, level. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and that's why when I say, like, that I was depressed my whole life, I mean, like, I can I can remember my mom threatening to kill herself if I didn't do the dishes um, because she was just really not well. <laughs> Mm-hmm. She was struggling a lot, and she never went to counseling. She never did medication. So, yeah, um, yeah, not to make the entire show about me or anything, <laughs> but since we're both kind of sharing our our thoughts on suicidality, I thought I would um, weigh in, as it were. Um, but yeah, then there was also um, I I definitely came I definitely made like a specific attempt to try and jump off of a off of a roof, um, but I got busted both by neighbors and then by my brother. Um, but we never spoke about it. So. There was sort of that. Both of those things happened at like seven, seven, eight. Um, so, yeah. Um, since then, it's mostly just been depression and like coping strategies for not killing myself. Mm-hmm. And there have been times, like even even potentially like a whole year here or there, where I just haven't really been particularly suicidal. But typically, it always returns cyclically, and I'll experience some degree of depression. So that's why when you know. The funny thing about that is all of that considered at no point did, um, at no point was there really like an intervention. Like, I think my teachers demanded my parents take me to a psychiatrist because I was quote unquote disruptive for which they put me on Ritalin. 
that was that was the treatment that I got. An obviously like really upset kid being bullied all the time, agitated because racism and being bullied at school <laughs> gets drugged and put on racism specifically. And I use the phrase gets drugged because it's not like I was on, you know, Wellbutrin or yeah. an SSRI. They specifically put me on something so that I would focus in class even though it came with side effects and I would get home and I would cry from like 4 PM until about 6 PM as the drug wore off. And it was like irreconcilable. Like, wait, that's not the right word that I want. Inconceivable. Inconsolable is the word I'm going for. Yeah. I was completely inconsolable. My parents would be like, do you want to go to McDonald's? Um, and we were poor. They never offered that. They yeah. would never have offered to take me to McDonald's, but it was difficult for them to listen to me cry for two hours a night. And it was like every night I would come home from school, the dose would wear off, and I would cry for two hours. Oh, that's awful. And it was like that for months and months and months and months while I was at school. Like I think there was like a whole school year that I was like that. Um, and then my parents, I think, couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> they tried it for one year, and then the reason they took me off the Ritalin was because they couldn't take it. Man, if you see something that has that kind of connection, like, how can you continue giving someone something? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was fine at six o'clock. <laughs> I was fine by the time dinner rolled around. It was just come home from school, cry until dinner, and then go to dinner. Oh, right. And then everything was fine in, then in the sense that I was shell-shocked and coping with, like, what the fuck just happened to me because I was young and like didn't really understand what was going on mm -hmm. um but that would have been geez it would have been like nine ten what grade would that have been grade three how old are you in grade three yeah like nine years old probably yeah grade three grade four nine ten so yeah that was my experience with medication and i think that's part of the reason that i resisted doing mental health medications for so long was because i had such a negative experience seeing a psychiatrist and dealing with it that makes a lot of sense um and i i mean psychiatrists don't tend to just you know they have a little bit of an intake meeting with you they give you a prescription and then they see you what in another month or two for like 10 minutes asking how it's going like, do we need to make any modifications um no okay and that's like a best case scenario because usually they'll see you in like another three to six months like if they can see you every month yeah, like yeah, you have true. great access to a psychiatrist i would say yeah which is insane yeah because with mental health meds like you need to be checking in with the doctor every two weeks i would say like, especially when you're first going on them, like shit can really change on a week to week basis. And if you just want to discontinue, you need to have a plan for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, they do tell you that, but they don't necessarily like offer you a means. Explain it. Yeah. And if, if someone doesn't explain exactly why you shouldn't do something, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot easier to continue doing it. Also, when the medication says discontinuation side effects, they mean withdrawal symptoms. They're the same thing. Right. Yeah. So it's really easy to be like, oh, this doesn't have any withdrawal symptoms. No, it does. It does. <laughs> they just don't call them that anymore because, you know, it sounds too negative. Right. <laughs> yeah. So what got in the way of you taking meds? Um, probably previous experience with medications. Um, I didn't trust myself to really take something every day at the same time. I mean, I could barely feed myself properly. How am I supposed to remember meds? And then 
it was such a higher stake thing because if I wanted to hurt myself by self-neglect of like not taking my meds, I would throw myself into wild roller coasters of emotions and that potential is there. Right. Um, you know, just for not taking it for a couple of days if you forget. Um, and if you forget one day, the chance that you're going to self-harm by choosing to just go off your meds or something without any plan, like right, those raises. types of thoughts also like, yeah. totally, and, and also the, the reliability thing that you mentioned that absolutely affected me. Yeah. The, the dependency on something, um, just the idea even that I needed something, I like mm-hmm. to be able to do things on my own. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Um, that and, and what was it? Side effects, um, of of certain ones that, that you can experience. Um, there was something else. Side effects are definitely a big one because we could even go into like all of the different kinds of side effects and how specific they are. And there Mm -hmm. are medications that can cause permanent liver damage that actually kill your liver and you need a liver transplant. Um, but in like one out of 300,000 cases, or sorry, one out of every 300,000 patient years of consuming the medication. Right. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't even, I'm not even looking at, say, those big risks that happen really rarely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are sexual side effects for some of them. And sometimes those are really common. Like we're talking 60% of the time or higher. Like, yeah, it's crazy. The first one I was on, and I mean, the sexual side effects are like um, inability to orgasm. Um, or so an- anhedonia with sex, right? Like a lack of sexual desire or a lack of, ple- lack of pleasure during sex. Right, yeah. And that just kind of, you know, is not a tolerable side effect. And, you know, that is also affecting your relationships and that also affects your quality of life. Um, and inability to orgasm for me is is really, really bad because not only is it being completely cut off from my orgasm, but like blue balls are a real thing. <laughs> I mean, we joke about it a lot, mm-hmm. but like if if I'm getting close to orgasm or have just been enjoying a lot of sex that day and never have been close to orgasm, just the act of being close in sex will cause all the glands in my genitals to like secrete all the different components of semen. And at some point, those need to be cleared. And if they aren't cleared in any way, that's a really big problem. Now, this isn't a problem for my urethra because I can just go pee after sex, not a problem. But for my vas deferens, it can be a problem. And if I don't orgasm after having a lot of sexual stimulation, I can have some of the most excruciating vas deferens and testicular pain, um, colloquially called blue balls. (laughs) It was when I was 17 and I first experienced this, um, it was just the worst it was so painful that literally getting into bed was something i had to do incredibly gingerly and just the feeling of the sheet moving across my scrotum was agonizing like it was some of the worst pain i've ever experienced because at least getting kicked in the balls and feeling really intense gonad pain is like a one and done it's like it's like 15 minutes to 20 minutes tops and then you're like able to walk around it's not crip well you know, it's not critically destructive. Yeah, you know what I mean. You know what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Intolerable side effects. It is not totally intolerable, right? So, so sexual. So yes, yeah, so lack of orgasm would be an intolerable side effect for me. Yeah, though I did have like a psychiatrist say that like some guys do really enjoy that side effect, that particular side effect. 
Um, I wish. <laughs> I wish that was a that was a thing. I mean, it is for some people. And hey, if you're like, if that's the thing that tips it in favor of going on meds, and you've been hesitant and haven't tried, like. Yeah, I mean, if you have premature ejaculation issues and you really just want to know what sex would be like if you didn't really come very much or at all. Or it just was very difficult to get there. Yeah, because for some people it's just harder to get to orgasm and Mm -hmm. they can still get there. So if you feel like getting to orgasm has has never been an issue for you, um, which it has been for me. Um, it's already difficult for me to get to orgasm. I don't need medication to make it harder for me. Right. SSRIs, I think, maybe not all of them, but the ones that I was on, um, they can cause weight gain as well. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Probably increased appetite. And those are the big two. Sexual sexual dysfunction is what they usually call it because it can also result in like um, painful erections that won't go away. And it can, it can, there's all kinds of, it's not just as simple as like, it can prolong your, um, right. right. Yeah. Cause like sexual dysfunction can look a million different ways and different medications will have different forms of sexual dysfunction based on what kind of medication they are. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize this either. Um, in fact, um, bupropion can, can also get flagged for sexual dysfunction sometimes, but usually what they're talking about is an increase in sex drive. Really? Yeah. In fact, it, in, there's. I need to. I need to look specifically at the wiki page, um, which you can also do at home. Um, but my understanding was there were select cases where it could actually improve. Um, that it was reported to improve specifically in women, um, some kind of um, inorgasmia or something like that. But I'll have to look it up. Interesting. Maybe it just is removing the depression, and therefore that right? drive comes back. Um, Absolutely. I I was, I think, specifically on bupropion because it was said to not have the same side effects in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, it's used to, like, help people stop smoking. So it's good for addictions. Um, So here, I looked it up on Wikipedia. Um, by the way, bu- bupropion is not just known as Effexor. Or sorry, it's not. No. Sorry, that's not at all well, what butrin. it's called. Well, butrin, but it's also known as Zyban. That was the one that I didn't know it was called. Oh, okay. So, so two brand well, names. Butrin and Zyban are brand names of bupropion in case those mean something to you. So it says bupropion is less likely than other antidepressants to cause sexual dysfunction. A range of studies demonstrate that it not only produces fewer sexual side effects than other antidepressants, but can actually help to alleviate sexual dysfunction. According to a survey of psychiatrists, it is the drug of choice for treatment of SSRI-induced sexual dysfunction, although this is not an indicated approved approved um use by the u.s fda okay yeah they often um prescribe them together right so if you do an ssri and you have side effects on it or you don't achieve complete um um what's the word i'm looking for um it's the same same word they use for cancer um, remission of depression. If you don't achieve complete remission of depression with an SSRI, they'll often prescribe Wellbutrin um, or Zyban or Bupropion, same thing, um, as like an additional medication to help with those issues. So there have also been several studies suggesting that Bupropion can improve sexual function in women who are not depressed if they have hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which to me doesn't sound like a real thing. I'm sure it is, but it just sounds like you don't have a lot of sexual desire. You're not depressed and you're like, you know what? I'm good just not having lots of sex. But then suddenly you're like, I would like to bone some. This might be a thing you could try. 
I could be completely talking out of my ass though. Maybe hypoactive sexual desire disorder is a real clinical thing, but to me, it smacks of like the medicalization of things like asexuality. Maybe you just really don't want to fuck and that's legitimate. I think the difference would be if it's distressing to you that you don't want to. Exactly. Because I find sometimes when my drive gets really low, I'm like, ah. That's sad. Okay, so here's what Wikipedia <laughs> says about hypoactive sexual desire disorder. We can get lost in a Wikipedia wormhole, and I'm totally comfortable with that. It says that um, HSDD, which is what we we're talking about, or inhibited sexual desire, ISD, is considered a sexual dysfunction and is characterized as a lack or absence of sexual fantasies and also a lack or absence of a desire for sexual activity, comma, as judged by a clinician. <laughs> what? What? Okay, is that like a quote from the DSM, though? Is this in the DSM? I mean, I don't even know if it's in the DSM-5. HSDD was split into male hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Oh, no. And female sexual interest slash arousal disorder. It was first included in the DSM-3 under the name inhibited sexual desire disorder, but the name was changed. Okay, but I, I mean... <laughs> they, they don't diagnose something unless it's like right. really distressing to yeah. the person and affecting their right. daily life. Right. So if it's affecting their relationship and it's really distressing to them, then this I can is, see them given the diagnosis. I'm going to stick to my guns and say this is a problematic as fuck thing to even be in the DSM. I yeah. Can, it just smacks of like... You know, in monogamy, one person who's married wants to have sex and the other person's like, I'm good literally never having sex again. And they're like, you should go see someone about that. Yeah, yeah, it does. On the other hand, if you have a long-term partner and you remember really enjoying sex with them and you don't really feel like having sex with them anymore and that's distressing to you, then yeah, maybe you want to take something that that helps restore sex drive. That can be really amazing sometimes because sex is a great place where we find connection and understanding and touch needs and all of these other wonderful things that can help feel like community and companionship for me. So when I think about these sexual dysfunction side effects and medications, they really deter me from pursuing medications because I don't want to lose my social network being a slut, which is <laughs> in large part people who want to fuck me. If I stopped having sex, I would lose the strong, in my honest opinion, I feel like I would lose the strongest social supporters in my life, the people who like will hold me as I fall asleep and, and treat me amazingly well. Being a slut, I have found other sluts and they are also highly sexed so that they match me being highly sexed. And if that shifts, the life circumstance change alone could be catastrophic and send me into depression. So I'm like, an SSRI sounds like a terrible idea, but I am thinking of going on a serotonin modulator, but we'll save that for the meds episode. Right. That's my summary of what I think about this Anyway, so the point being, bupropion can in some cases increase sexual desire and sexual fantasy, at least in women, according to Wikipedia. Yeah. It also decreases appetite and can cause you to lose weight. So literally, it's like the opposite of all the side effects of an SSRI. Yeah. And it can still alleviate depression. Yeah. So basically what we're saying is, why are you not... I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you should only do what's right for you, and we're not saying you should necessarily take any of these medications. Or that side effects are necessarily desirable because weight loss can be really difficult to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to speak to that? Um, I mean, it's definitely counter to my life goals at this point. Uh, I don't know how much of that is the meds, though, versus just whatever kind of habits you build up. 
Um, if you mm. stop eating for quite some time, it just becomes really difficult to reintroduce food into your daily life routine. You'll just forget that you need to feed yourself until like 2 p.m. And at that point now, everything makes you feel nauseous. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good thing. Yeah, but you also feel like really shaky and malnourished. It sounds like a pretty bad side effect. Um, oh, well, this was before I started Wellbutrin. Oh. Yeah, th this was from the depression. So, so this was, right. Yeah, so so then, you know, when you start getting better, you have to rebuild all of these patterns and routines that, you know, were so difficult to put into place in the first part, and now they're just totally gone, and you have to start from scratch. Oh. I remember thinking, like, did I just always, like have the knowledge of like where my gym bag is like did i plan social outings around like do i have my gym bag with me so i can get to the gym afterwards yes and, like, the answer is yes yeah did. yeah i did but you would literally bring your gym bag when you were when we were gonna have sex <laughs> if, we, if we had sex anywhere other than your place because you knew that you were going to the gym afterwards anyways yeah You'd yeah like shower and then go to the gym but i forgot that i had put so much awareness and attention to that so when i started getting back into the gym routine it was something that i really needed to actively focus on and there were a number of times where i was oh i forgot my bag like just can't go now that sucks <laughs> or i'm gonna have to go home first and then be late or, or things like that but how's, yeah how's recovery from your concussion going um, I, I mean, after a certain point, I think the physical symptoms of depression definitely mimic the concussion mm. headache. Mm -hmm. Um, also, if you go from not exercising at all to running for 30 minutes, um, that can That's cause intense. a headache. Yeah. Just just like not being in shape to doing something. Also, if you're malnourished and you go and do any physical exertion, that can cause a headache. Yeah. Um, if you're just not drinking enough water. Um, th there are so many things that can cause headaches. And I was linking every single one of them to the concussion. And just that anxiety about the concussion in the first place is also contributing to the, the headaches. Um so essentially all of those amazing superhero-like coping strategies that you had so well assembled and put together in the beginning got completely disrupted by a major depressive episode, and now you're back to square one, as it were, except you know that there's a blueprint that works for you, and you're on this medication that helps you cope. Yeah, once, once I was on the medication, that was the key, because I did have all of the strategies. I was doing them to as as good as I possibly could for as much energy as I had um, I was doing everything that I felt I could do even if I was hating myself for not doing enough um, you right. know like and it just it what wasn't getting anywhere you, you know I got to the point where like what does it matter if I um, you know am not depressed and still can't do my passion now of, of kickboxing. Um, you know, what does it matter if I'm miserable or not? Cause I'm still going to be miserable if I can't kickbox. Um, but you there just had lost so much. Yeah. There, there's 
definitely a difference between being miserable and not being miserable. It, it matters. <laughs> like, it it matters. Didn't seem to matter at the time or, or, or like, I guess, even be possible. Oh, yeah. Uh, Depressions uh, like that, though, things that really should matter. It's sort of the same thing of like anhedonia of things not giving you pleasure anymore. Yeah. Things that used to matter just stop mattering for me. Yeah, everything. It's, yeah. And it's really fantastic that you found meds that at, at least partially work, if not work. Yeah, there were there were two health professionals that kind of swung me. One of them um, just said, you know, oh, I, I find it really interesting that everyone seems so concerned about the long-term effects of the antidepressants. Um, but doesn't give a single second to think about the long-term effects of smoking pot five times a day every day for years and years and years. Um, Or anything else depression brings or suicidality. Yeah, or any other bad habit that you have, um, you know, for anything. It's just, yeah, And, and I knew it was a lot of the stigma that was just preventing me from accepting it um and then the neuropsychologist at the concussion clinic and i highly recommend the concussion clinic by the way they were awesome um they are she told she was like okay so you're telling me you have a family history of depression you're telling me you have a personal history of depression you're telling me you have a physical (laughs) concussion related um you know reason for having depression you've told me your coping strategies of exercise have been taken away um oh and you just experienced you know this traumatic event of like losing your friend um why aren't you on antidepressants like you have literally five good reasons right there yeah yeah and and i think at at that point it had just been so long and in such agony that i just yeah i said okay and I went to my family doctor, I think, the next day and, w- yeah, got the bupropion that I'd been on before. Yep. And then I had to wait another six weeks for them to k- kick in. <laughs> That's another thing people don't realize about meds is, like, from when you decide you want to actually get the meds to when the meds actually start working is a significant period of time. It's so a do the- long time to, yeah, feel like you're doing you know, this new thing that was hard for you to do and then to experience the relief that it can bring. Right. Like, don't wait until it's critical. Like, go when you first think, like, oh, I'm feeling that, that like, depressive aura. Like, for me, I think that's going to hit me in, like, September or October when I start feeling like, oh, the seasons are just starting to catch up with me. And if I do all of my coping strategies right, it's not going to hit until December. But it'll hit, like, mid-December, and I'll be like, fuck, despite doing everything right, going out to UV tanning beds, doing exercise, diet, hydration, sleep, I am now fully in the grip of depression. That's going to hit me in, like, December. So I'm already doing research. Um, I'm already, I already have drugs in my room, specifically Trintilix. Um, and if that doesn't work out over the next, like, couple months of testing, Um, Because it's going to take me at least a few months and I'm going to need to do it um, in the absence of any other major life changes. And because I'm pulling out of depression, I've got a job interview tomorrow. 
Um, and if I get the job, I'll be working full-time September and October, and then I'll have the major life change of being unemployed in November. Guess what that means? <laughs> so, yep. So I just have to plan for it. And like, yeah, hopefully one of the two medications will make a difference because if this one doesn't, the next one I'm going to is one year on bupropion. Yeah. And the thing is, is like once, once you're on medication and you, I mean, it was such a drastic drastic change it's it's ridiculous how drastic it was um you know i can remember just waking up that morning and just being confused that that i wasn't crying um you know and like all of a sudden my body was just 50 pounds lighter um you know it, it's just it, from one day to the next it, it was just Night and day. Yeah, night and day. But it took six weeks of taking it to get to that night and day. It did, yeah. And that was a long six weeks. Um, yeah, if I had have been less stubborn. Um, but also the fear is... And it's if I get to this state of depression and fine, you give me the meds and they get me out of it. Um, and fine, say I take your advice and I stay on them forever. Um what happens the next time an episode hits? Now I don't have this magic pill to bring oh my me God. out of it. Yes, that is definitely one that got in the way for me. Do I just have to add more on? Is that what happens? Um, right, like this is my thing I clutch into in an emergency. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that the more rises and falls you have, like the more times you do something, anything, the better your brain gets at doing it. Mm -hmm. So these patterns are actually physically affecting your brain and they are physically changing things inside of it to make this cycle happen easier. And Right, right, right. Because you're training. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're on the meds, which I have been for this most recent, like huge life change of like getting fired within a week. And, and like, I, I was prepared for it mentally in some ways, but a lot of that preparation was like, be prepared for an episode to come. And I'm already on a, like the max dose for me. Um, what am I going to do at that point? Like, I was terrified of that more than anything. Um, and it just, there there were days where it, it got fairly bad and, you know, I'd be crying or whatever, but it, it was only a day here or there. Um, you know, if there's, whatever, whatever it was, it just, it wasn't as bad. And I don't think I have, I wouldn't say I've slipped into an episode. So the fear of what am I going to do the next episode? It's almost like, no, this is to prevent the next episode. And then, then you can get the confidence too of like, okay, well, this actually wasn't the worst thing in the world. Um, but I mean, you, you can't drink really. So there's, you know, there, there's pros, <laughs> yes. pros and cons. Uh, I mean, right. not that that, you know, would be the 
the thing, but I mean, there there are definitely things that... Unless you, you're an alcoholic, that really shouldn't be the linchpin, I don't think. Yeah, but, but it does affect your future lifestyle. And if, you know, some people might be able to give it up for two years, um, sure. you know, but the idea of giving it up forever... It can seem intimidating, but it comes back to like, would you like to give up, you know recreational drinking forever or would you like to give up like the relief from depression forever right and and you can say skip it a day or two if you want to be drinking or whatever and and things like that and yeah yeah that's not the and you can go on medications that are less interactive with alcohol too that are more tolerant of cheating quote unquote right right yeah there, there are lots of options i think it's definitely worth trying because i had all the coping skills in the world and they only started taking effect when the meds kicked in yep it was and it, it was like an immediate thing i mean that wasn't the end of it by any means like i was still shaky and like right next to that hole ready to fall back in at any moment it felt like um and it took me a good probably four months after the meds kicked in to really feel like i was at a, a good place again in my life um yeah i forget where i was going with that um but, oh, yeah, sure. they, they, it almost just magnified the coping strategies that right. I had. All right. of a sudden, those started to work. And also, if you aren't doing CBT, it's worth going to look at things like mistaken beliefs and talking about conclusions you've come to about yourself and working on policing and cleaning up your internal monologue. Like, those are the sorts of things that counseling does do fairly well. And they're also the sort of things that can work against you amplifying depressive tendencies. Yeah. I mean, even knowing about rumination and that it's a bad thing for you, um, and having tools of like, okay, you can distract yourself from rumination or, okay, let's mm -hmm. look at this more um, actively rather than having it just be passively repeating. But still, I just, it would just be a constant overwhelming of the rumination and it, I wouldn't notice it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wow, I've been, you know, hours. this has been just taking over my brain and it's not good for me. Mm -hmm. um, and you just had to constantly fight it and constantly distract yourself. It was a constant fight. Um, but when the meds kicked in, that, you know, it, that went away with the weight. It went away with the crying. It, that, you know, looming rumination over everything just let up. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the little bits of rumination after that were easy to manage because it wasn't everything anymore. Yeah. I really relate to that. I struggle with it a lot. Do you want to define rumination for people listening along? Right. Um, it's the repetitive, passive um, thinking about a negative event. Like the cyclical going over and over and over the thing. Yeah. And I didn't know that that was uh, like a weird thought process before I took a course. And, and yeah, it was identified to me as rumination. And it was like, oh, not everyone does that. Right. It, but isn't that how you prepare for things, says the anxiety-ridden brain? Yeah. And... And it, 
when you're doing it without that awareness, the idea in my head anyway, was that the more times I think about this or let it repeat, the more desensitized I am going to be to that situation. Um, you know, I somehow that that should distance you or, or you know, you shouldn't feel as strongly about it anymore but it actually does the opposite it just kind of like it's a positive feedback loop where you think about the negative thing and then it just gets worse and worse and worse right and i and especially if you don't have like a really good sense of how to confront damaging um internal beliefs or mistaken beliefs about outcomes you are very likely to use that time to catastrophize the situation and just actively reduce your coping resources because you're spending all of your energy doing this thing that's fundamentally destructive and unhelpful. Mm -hmm. But we can talk more about that when we talk about meds, if you'd like. Right. And like, I think the thing with rumination is that it's automatic, you know, like it, it, it'll start without me being aware of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, when people talk about um, automatic things, like um, theories of emotion even, thinking about emotions as automatic, et cetera, um, I'm, I'm really quick to, to think of it more as not hardwired, but softwired. Like there's very much the sense that you leave your brain with a set of instructions. Like it's, it's taking all the cognitive thinking and processing you're doing and abstracting that to being as automated as possible for a lot of things, especially with it's emotion. It's a pattern. Right. And we don't always consciously choose what patterns are getting abstracted. We just behave in a certain way long enough. And then our brain goes, cool, this is just who we are now. Yeah. Um, and the problem with that is it can make it seem automatic in a way that you have no ability to change. But you always have the ability to, to some extent, to repattern a little bit. Yeah, you, you have to catch it and break it. Yes, you have to confront it and you have to be aware you're doing it. So first you have to cultivate the self-awareness. Then you have to actively unlearn that conclusion or that that strategy or that idea or framing. And then after all of that, you then have to go and confront it repeatedly using that self-awareness until you catch it enough that you break that pattern. And then your brain can sort of adjust to who you are now. But that's a lot of work and it takes time. And that's why I go to cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. And, and it takes years to... Um... It can. It's, it's sometimes your brain will surprise you. It's like it can take years with some things and other things you'll go and you'll just hit a couple of really important events in your life. And you'll have really good coaching from a therapist around those events. And then it'll just be done. So it just really depends because I've had stuff go in what seems like a few weeks and other stuff that seems like a few years. Yeah, different things will resonate with different people. Yeah. And I think that's pretty much all the questions that I wanted to ask. Cool. Thank you, Dax, so much for your time. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. 
I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Resurrection by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.